0: Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Well, it's good to see you guys. Good morning. That's some of you. Good morning. So good to be here, be in the house of the Lord. Lift up the name of Jesus with one another. Uh, my name is Pastor Dale Demel, the lead pastor here, and uh, that was my wife, Jana, who just went out with the kids. I have uh, three children of my own, and uh, one of them is doing uh, his internship at Cedar Valley Church in Bloomington. Um, I also have a daughter who just turned 18 and started her kind of freshman year in college, even though she did PSEO this this last year. And then my youngest being Asher, he is uh, here with us and he's taller than me and he lets me know it every single day. Um, Actually, his exact words, and I quote, it must suck being so short, Dad. (laughs) And then I wish I would have said that to him for the last 15 years, but, you know, that's what it is. Uh, Today... We are in our, our second week of a series that, and it's just two weeks long, called Fighting Against God. And Jonah is, is the main uh, book that we're looking at, the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Uh, but the way we got the title was through Acts chapter 5, 34 through 39, because I believe this is exactly what Jonah was doing. He was fighting against the will of God. And let's just go ahead and read, and I'll I'll start from there. Uh, Starting at verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, these were Jesus' disciples after he had resurrected and gone to heaven. Verse 35. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago... Cdeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers was, were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. Verse 37. "After him, Judas the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we give this morning to you. We give this Sunday to you, O God. And we ask that uh, you continue to come and to minister to our spirits. Lord, some may be here today weary and in need of, of your breath, of your pneuma being breathed in into your people. And Lord, I ask that you provide that. For those that, that are in need of healing, Lord Jesus, I pray that, that you bring your healing touch as we are here together, Lord God. And for those that need encouragement, Lord, I ask that you encourage their spirits. I ask that you begin to, to breathe your life and to show direction and light, light to their paths, oh God. Lord, I ask that you come and I ask that you minister to each one of us in the ways that you know that we need it. And the church said, Amen and amen. I think for many of us, there are moments of hanging on to something so tightly that we dare not let go. We love control, and maybe love is not the right word. We're afraid of letting go. We're we're afraid. We all get that, right? It's hard. I mean, that, that could look like so many things. It could look like a job or a career or something you had planned. It could, it could look like how your, your children, the moment of having to, to let go. I remember when my kids were young, the amount of times I had to, it, when they were really young, it was I, I prayed and I said, Lord, I give my kids to you and, and I offer them to you. Um, and then All of a sudden, worry would come when they'd go in the car with somebody else and say, Oh Lord, I'm I'm afraid. And once again I would give them to the Lord. And it became a practice, a constant practice of giving to the Lord. And I remember that time in my marriage where that happened. We had been, Jane and I had been married only for a few years, and and it had been rough. It started to get rough. We I was working long hours. I was driving, I was from Hutchinson to the Mall of America. I was commuting an hour and 15 minutes each way. I wasn't, I was gone early, back late. It was tough. And and I remember this moment where I I had to give my relationship to Jesus. And and I had done it before, but this time it was it was for real. I said, Lord, I, I I'm trying to grip and hold so tightly, and I need you here, and I am going to give my marriage, I'm going to give my relationship, I'm going to give my parenthood, everything that that I've been striving to do in my young life, and I'm giving it to you. And it's so interesting. Letting go was one of the hardest things I had to do up to that time in my life. And it was not until I was able to let go did God start taking control now, I'm not trying to say that if, if you um, are in a trouble with your marriage or if you had a divorce in your life, I'm not saying it's because you didn't let go, okay? I don't know your situation. But for me, in my situation at that time, that was what, exactly what I was facing. I was fighting against God. I was trying to control everything. I, I, I needed that safety net. And yet God had a different plan, and he couldn't move until... I began to let go and relent and to allow God to work in my own life. Could you please um, put up that map for me, Sheila? Now, just just go ahead and leave this up for a little bit. Just as a review, last week we talked about Jonah, generally chapters 1 and 2. And you can see that the red arrow going to Nineveh would have been the short, easy path when God told Noah to go, or Noah, (laughs) Jonah to go. That that would have been the right way to go, but you can see if you go to the far left, way out there, that is what he paid a fare, and it would have been an expensive fare to go all the way out there. And the little squiggly line is just where this map kind of says, maybe around this area is where God brought the storm and disrupted this trip and brought him all the way back around. Now, this is not the first time that we see Jonah in Second Kings fourteen twenty-five. It says, "In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through His servant Jonah, son of Amittai." When you read in Jonah, this is the same Jonah, the same father's name. Okay, so we already know he is a prophet of God. He is not just some random guy walking around and God said, hey, you're going to go and do this big giant thing. And unless I'm mistaken, and I know one of you will correct me if I'm wrong, as far as I can see, Jonah is the first person, first prophet that God elects to go to a totally different group of people. Now, you, we, we support missionaries. We support a whole bunch of Jonahs that God has called to go and bring the gospel out. Go out and be among them. This is what was happening with Jonah. Now, why did Jonah fight this? And this was more than a guy just being, oh, I just don't want to go there to those people. Nineveh ended up a little bit later becoming the main capital of Assyria. This is, if you go and and read Isaiah chapter 8, he prophesies and says, because you have gone away from the Lord, God is going to raise up the Assyrians to come and to conquer you. And different prophets after that prophesy the same thing. Jonah knows all of these prophecies. He knows that the Assyrian people are going to come and that they are going to take over and rule over them. Why on earth would Jonah want to go and speak life and repentance to the very people God has elected to come and conquer them? I don't know about you, but for me, I can relate with Jonah wanting to leave. I can relate with not wanting to go to my future enemies. And according to history, this is exactly what happened just a number of decades later. Jonah ran the opposite direction. Now, if I were to ask today, those of you who maybe you're serving God now and you can look back in your life and you can say, there were times that I ran from God and the price was really expensive. And that's the same case for Jonah. Not only was it expensive with the money that he had, he got no reimbursement from that travel, he got no reimbursement from the big fish that took him and spit him three days journey from the shore of Nineveh. Now, here's the deal about Jonah. It is a supernatural story. Now, sometimes we read the scriptures and, and we see these big, giant things happening, and we think that supernatural events happened constantly all the time. But that's actually not the case. They happened But they were not as frequent as sometimes that we think when we're reading Scripture. But they did happen. We serve a supernatural God that uses supernatural activity to get his will done and to draw attention to the goodness and the greatness of who he is. Here's what I know. Jesus quoted Jonah in the Gospels. And he made two points about it. So if you like to do research on your side, uh, Matthew, uh, on your own time, Matthew 12 and uh, Luke chapter 3, Jesus references Jonah. And there's two points that he makes about Jonah. And so my first point is, is that if he's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Jonah was in the big fish for three days. And Jesus said, just like Jonah was in that fish for three days, I will be in the belly of this earth for three days. He draws that same. That's why Jonah, in this way, is is considered um, a type of Jesus. Number two, the corporate um, generation wants a sign. The, the, The corrupt generation wants a sign, is what Jesus says. But instead, all they will get is the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? It is a man smelling of dead and rotted fish, walking three days, to tell them that if they do not repent, they will die. That is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus said, this perverse generation, all they do is want a sign, but I tell you, this is all they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. I believe that Jesus gives Jonah all the credibility that I need. We serve a supernatural God that died a supernatural and physical death on the cross, and he supernaturally, he rose again. He healed people. He spoke life into people, the truth. You know, as a church, we speak a lot about the importance of Christians maturing, the Importance for each one of us to not be stagnant in our faith. And I I would consider it my personal greatest failure if we just patted everybody on the back and, and said, you accepted Christ, great, that's it. Get in line, play the part, give to the church, volunteer, go home, and repeat next week. If that was all of the expectation that we had for our church, we would be in a lot of trouble. And I would consider it my greatest failure as a pastor here. If this is your expectation as a Christian, I hope that after today your mindset will begin to change. In the same way as your pastor and our leadership team, if our goal was just to grow, just to gather more people in a room, just for the sake of growing a crowd. And and maybe our avenues of growth would be, maybe we could be cool enough. Maybe, Maybe we could be smart enough. Maybe we could be cleverer than the next. Then we could grow big enough, just big enough, to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we did. There's got to be more from a God who sent his son to die so we may live. There has got to be more that God is expecting of us. There's got to be more that God will do in our lives for a God who said, you are so important to me, I love you so much that I am going to send my son Jesus to die not to live nominal lives just to be okay because one day we bowed uh, our knees to to Christ and maybe we cried because we knew that we were sinners and then we got up and said, okay, I've done that, now here we go. Back back to life as normal. After Jesus' water baptism, the Spirit of, of God Took Jesus, and, and some of the scriptures, I mean, it, it's almost like a violent, it threw him, it, it just moved him into the wilderness, into the desert to be with the Lord. And, and there's these 40 days of temptation, and these 40 days where, where Jesus is, is being purified and being ready to do this ministry, this ministry uh, that we see in, in the gospels of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna read here Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14. I'll just read up here. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say to them, Today the Scripture is fulfilled In your hearing. What did Jesus do? First, he proclaimed good news to the poor. I think I have a slide for you on this one. He proclaimed the freedom for the people, he brought healing, he brought deliverance through strongholds and oppression in people's lives. In the same way, we too are to bring this same message to the world that we live in. These are actions. These are movements of obedience and sacrifice from you and, and, and from me. So let me ask you these questions. Has Christ given you hope? Yes. Then share this hope. Has Christ given you healing? Then share this healing. Has Christ delivered you from strongholds and oppression in your life. Uh, What? Yes. Yes, he has. Then share it. Then be to others what Christ was for Israel in that moment. And then you're saying, well, are are you saying that we're to be like Jesus? Yes. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Man, get this in you, friends. Get this in you. Wear it. Just as Jesus read what he was coming to do, we are to be for others. We are called to this. We are not called to be nominal. We are not called to be lukewarm. We are called to be lights proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I found this, this note this week and I said to Jaina, I'm like, you know, I, I go through my old notebooks sometimes and I'm like, garbage, garbage, garbage. And I found one and I'm like, oh, this is good. Who wrote this? You know, because every once in a while, right? There's something in there. And, and I found myself... I found myself just reading it over and over again, and it, it's, it's just a note to me saying, Dale, preach in such a way to uncover, uncover the hearers from the weight of the world, to, to uncover us from, from the weight of life that, that is weighing us down and forgetting, oh my goodness, Lord, I am so sorry. You have called me to be more than conqueror, not to be just a survivor. Some of you should be a little more excited this morning. (laughs) Maybe I scared you last week. I sat on a chair because I had an allergic reaction, so I was really nervous. So this week I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) Four things we do as a church, okay? Saved, right? People, we need salvation. We need to see people get saved and turn to the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Next is discipleship. Everything we do from our classrooms to life groups to teaching on a Sunday morning to worship to anything else that we are teaching and bringing up people in the way of the Lord is discipleship. And then pastored everything that, that we do from care ministry to, to being with people through the hardest times of their life to the wonderful things and celebrations of, of exciting things to celebrate of children and marriage and new jobs and retirement and all the things that we celebrate. We pastor through these moments and through difficult times like we're facing as a country. And lastly, what do we do? We mobilize. As a church, when we come together, there is power. And this is the most creative entrepreneurial aspect of a church is the way that we can reach people. And it always, always will change with the way culture changes. We can't do what worked 30 years ago and expect it to work in 2020. This is why when the church mobilizes and it changes We need to change to reach people as well. You know, one of the most successful ministry things that I've ever done, I don't do it anymore. doesn't matter what it is, what it was. It was the most successful time when I became a full-time pastor where it worked. Oh my goodness, it was so fun. I got to see so much fruit from it. And you know what I had to do? I had to kill it. It ran its course. It worked for that time. It worked for that time in the world and for the group of people we were ministering to. It was hard. It was my baby. But that's what happens with mobilization. We have to be able to be creative and be able to reach people in different areas and different times of their lives, and this is what we do Jonah looks at God and he's angry. He just preached the most successful message of, I don't know, way better than I've ever done. Everybody got saved. Even they had the animals fast. Everybody fasted and they put sackcloth and ashes. Nineveh was pleading out to God. God. Do not destroy us. We are sorry. We have done evil. And Jonah says, It's just like you, God. You want to put those characteristics up for me, please? I'll just read them out here. Okay. It says, God is gracious. God is gracious. He said, God is merciful. He says, God is slow to anger. He says, God is abounding in steadfast love. And he's, he's telling God this, so it was, it was a little different. God, you are gracious. God, you are merciful. And then he said, "And God, you're a God who relents from disaster. And it made him angry because Jonah did not want God's graciousness, his mercy. He did not want his slow to anger. He did not want God's steadfast love to be poured out upon his enemy. Jonah wanted that for his people. Jonah wanted that for his life. And this is the second part of Jonah. Friends, life is too short for us to live bitterly. There's another example of a wicked king repenting and God listening in 1 Kings 21, verse 29. King Ahab, if you know anything about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they're examples that people know because of the wickedness. And this is what God says about Ahab after the prophet gave a warning to this wretched king. God says, look at how he humbled himself before me. Ahab was wicked. He was so wicked, yet God found himself pouring out mercy upon Ahab because of his posture towards God. What is your posture like? Is it like Nineveh? Are you crying out to God because of the ways that you've lived and the ways that you've sinned? And you're in fasting and prayer and you're saying, Lord, I am so broken for what I've become. Or are you like Jonah? Are you bitter? Are you angry? Even angry at God, fighting him at every turn. Let me me remind you, Jonah was a prophet of the Most High God. And he finds himself in this place of being so angry. Maybe you're like Ahab and maybe you've done some terrible things. But here's the great thing and the great news about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in our darkness and in our sin and in our filthiness, he has yet died for me. He has yet died for you. I feel like if Paul Harvey was telling the story of the prophet Jonah, the rest of the story would be the bitterness of Jonah. All bitterness starts out as wounds. Just like an uncared-for cut becomes infected, so are our offenses, if allowed to fester we become victims of our uncared-for hurts and pains. Are we sitting in front of the ER with a wound but too afraid to go in for healing? Are we enjoying the attention of our wounds by passerbys? Are we living as constant victims of things that have happened to us in our lives? We enjoy the attention that we get instead of walking around Healed, we hold on to this anger that has been birthed into bitterness. Do you have the slide of the uh, quotes here about bitterness? Here are a couple of quotes. Stephen Diamond says, One of the most destructive and toxic of human emotions is bitterness, one of the most toxic things that can enter our lives. Gregory Popkak, bitterness is unforgiveness fermented. I'll let that ferment for a second. Sorry, that was really bad. I'm sorry. Just, okay, next. Joyce Meyer, many of you know her story of years of just terrible abuse that she had in her life. She says, I know from personal experience how damaging it can be to live with bitterness and unforgiveness. I like to say it's like taking poison and hoping your enemy will die and it really is that harmful to us to live this way. That's a powerful statement. It's like taking poison, the poison of bitterness in our own lives and expecting the one who caused the offense to die all while we are the one. I think I got one more after this. Martin Luther King never succumbed to the temptation of bitterness because it is tempting. It is tempting to be able to hold on and to hang on. And there's sometimes there's almost an energy by anger. And and then that graduates into bitterness. And we become bitter and angry people. And friends, there is nothing worse for the gospel of Jesus Christ than a bitter Christian. Yes, Jesus came to take our anger. And yes, even when it has manifested into bitterness, he wants to take them both. Let us allow God's Spirit to be manifest in our lives to break strongholds of forgiveness, unforgiveness, of forgiving ourselves, right? And forgiving those that, that have hurt us and that, that caused damage to us. And even it, that Jonah was a God-fearer, but he still allowed his bitterness of the Assyrians to manifest in his own life. I'm going to pick up um, Jonah 4, starting in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. It's a shelter. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might have shade over his head to save him from the discomforts. It would have been super, super hot. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is an angry, bitter, bitter prophet. Verse 10, "And the Lord said, "You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there was more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? First of all, I think it's interesting that God values animals. He counted them among the people. This is really the point of God. Who are you, Jonah? Who are you to care? Shouldn't you care a lot more about the fact that there are 120,000 people that are blind? He says they don't know their left hand from their right hand. And God's mercy is now being poured out upon these people. Jonah looks at them as evil people. And Jonah is angry and he is bitter about it. Now, the story of Jonah is an incomplete story for me. There's nothing, it just stops there. We don't know anything from him at that point on. That bothers me a little bit, but the book is silent when it comes to what happens next. But here's what we do know is that we do not want to be fighting against God. Jonah is a perfect example that God will use us for his will to come and for his will to be complete, but it is a lot better for us to be able to understand that his ways are higher than our ways and to understand that he has a will to be able to save people, even our very enemies. And this is what makes what Jesus said so much more powerful of to pray for our enemies Boy, it's easy to say, isn't it? Pray for enemies until you have an enemy. Try praying for them. It's not easy. No amens on that one. Weird. <laughs> would you please stand with me? I'd like to invite the worship team up. I would like to lead us corporately in a prayer today. Now, you might be finding yourself and saying, listen, I don't really hold on to things. I'm not very angry. I'm not an angry person. I'm not bitter. That's good. But let me tell you something. Anger and being bitter can come in a moment. We need to guard our hearts. We need to learn from from this scripture and realize that this is not how God intended for us to live. And then I I believe that there's some other people in this room today that have had really terrible things happen. You've had hard things that you've had to, to go through. And sometimes people who hurt you did it purposely. And sometimes it was not intentional. And still, you've hung on and you've been angry and you've allowed bitterness to set in. And like Joyce Meyer said, you've taken the poison expecting them to be hurt and they're living just fine. And we are not to live this way. Jesus came to proclaim the healing. He came to proclaim, that to set the oppressed free. We are the oppressed friends. And we, as Christians, are to take this message, but how can we pass the message of, of freedom if we are in chains ourselves? So this sermon today is a sermon of freedom. Okay? There needs to be freedom in this place. There needs to be freedom in your life so we can move forward as a church. The scripture says that when one of us hurt, the whole church hurts, okay? We don't need to be limping along. We need to be on fire. We need to be moving, right? Healing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. I thank you that our sins died on the cross, died with Christ. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit to live in us, to abide in us, and to guide us. Jesus, I just I just pray universally here today that that we do not fight any longer, that we are, are not like Jonah, that we are not stubborn. Lord, I pray that we give in to your will, that, that we, we no longer want what's just best for ourselves and what we see. But Lord, we give our control over to you. Will you, O oh God, conform our minds? Will you, O oh God, conform our spirits to yours Will you show us areas, Lord Jesus, that we need to release to you? Would you just put your, if you'll feel comfortable doing it, just put your hands towards heaven for a second. Lord, we are your people. And Lord, right now, as a sign of surrender, we put our hands up to you. And Lord, I pray that we are not a church that holds on to anger and allows it to ferment into bitterness Lord, fighting against you is like blowing into a a hurricane. It just doesn't make sense. And so, Lord, right now, we just offer ourselves to you, and we ask that you begin to bring freedom into our lives. As the, the worship team leads us into a song of worship, I ask that you open yourself up to hearing from God about giving him everything. You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.